Hey, Prairie Pod listeners. I'm Megan Benage, regional ecologist with the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources. And I'm Dr. Marissa Allering, lead scientist with the Nature Conservancy in Minnesota, North Dakota, and South Dakota. I'm Sarah Bosick, wildlife biologist with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service based out of the Morris Wetland Management District. And I'm Mike Worland. I'm a wildlife biologist with the Minnesota DNR non-game wildlife program. We're part of the Minnesota Prairie Conservation Partnership, and we're here to help you... Discover the prairie. Discover the prairie. Discover the prairie. Discover the prairie. Welcome back to the Prairie Pod. Mike, how are you today? I'm great, Megan. Thank you. It's it's wonderful to be back in the room with all these, with all these great voices, all this knowledge. Yeah, I'm very excited about today's episode. I am very excited too. And for those of you who missed it, last week was part one of our Dakota Connections to the Prairie series. And we're very fortunate and extremely thankful to be here today with staff from the four Dakota communities in Minnesota. And we're just going to jump right in so we can keep the learning going and keep deepening our knowledge of traditional science. So let's go ahead and go around the room and have everybody introduce themselves. Let's do it. Michael, you want to start? Sure. How Tshunko Piamachiapi. Hello, my relatives. I am Michael Kurtz, the cultural interpreter and naturalist for the Shakopee Metawakanan Sioux community. Hello, everyone. My name is Will Crawford. I work with the Dakota language and our Dakota culture here on behalf of the Shakopee Metawakantua Dakota Oyate. Hey, everyone. This is Farron Davis Anderson. I'm the supervisor of environmental sciences for the Shakopee Metawakanan Sioux communities land and natural resources department. Han, greetings. I'm Deb Durlam with the Lower Sioux Dakota Community, and I'm the Director of Environmental Programs. I'm Samantha Odegaard, a Tribal Citizen and the Tribal Historic Preservation Officer for Pajutazizik Api, or the Upper Sioux Community. Uh, hello, my name is Amanda Wold. I'm the Environmental Director for the Pajutazizi Oyate, uh, the Upper Sioux Community here in Southwest Minnesota. Hi, yeah, this is Gabe Miller. I work for the Prairie Island Indian Community. Uh, Land and Environment Department as the Environmental Program Manager. All right, let's jump right in because we have a lot to cover today. And we left our last episode, which you should absolutely go check out. It is on our website and we're calling it part one. And so this is now what we consider part two. And so at the end of that episode, we left you with a cliffhanger where we asked, Dakota people are considered the original stewards of the land. And how are they continuing to do that work today? And so that's where we're going to kick this episode off, and we're going to learn some of this right now. And Farron, we'd love it if you would help share some knowledge with us. Yeah, thanks, Megan. Thanks for having us here. This has uh, been a really great opportunity to teach a lot of people about our different communities. So like you said, a lot of our communities are at the forefront of um, stewardship of the land. And so at Shakopee, for example, we've um, restored over a thousand acres of prairie since basically 1999, and we're continuing to add to that every single year. We've also restored 50 acres of oak savanna and several larger complexes or wetland complexes. And um, yeah, that's that's part of the SMSC's uh, commitment to being a good steward. And in our area, especially, we don't have remnant prairies left. A lot of the land has been converted for other uses like agriculture. It's one of the fastest growing counties in the state of Minnesota. We're in Scott County. And so there's also a lot of housing development that occurs around us. And so if the SMSC isn't actively purchasing land and restoring it back to the prairie, a lot of that's just, you know, developed around us. And so that's really important. I think that Sam talked about last episode about having access to prairie. And so if we're not doing this work now, you know, future generations aren't going to have access to prairie or learn about, you know, cultural teachings through the prairie if there's no prairie around them. Yeah, I would concur with what Farron had said. You know, a lot of the work that we do at Prairie Island um, has similar uh, goals and objectives, you know, Forefront of that is is culture and getting that connection of culture back to the land. On Prairie Island, we've restored over 400 acres of prairie in it, of, of itself, but also have done work in our waterways uh, along the Mississippi River. Uh, we have oak savanna that we've also restored um, uh, and managing things like invasive species that that uh, you know cha- uh, compete against our native plants um, that are important to the tribe. 
Well, here at the Lower Sioux community, the land that's undisturbed or undeveloped often remains a natural area. The natural areas are valued. The prairie areas within the community include a prairie remnant. And also we've been doing uh, work on prairie restoration for the past seven years. Much of the work does include removing invasive plants and shrubs, unfortunately. But then we plant native plants in those locations, and they've done very well. I feel the plants fit the locations where we are planting them. Um, Also, we do the periodic prescribed burns, and um, in a recent land use planning project, we've distinguished the prairie sites as um, protected areas. I think for my position as a THPO, it's a little bit different. It allows me the opportunity to consult with not only other departments within our community, like Amanda's, bringing in that cultural component, but we're also able to work with state and even federal agencies and bringing in that traditional knowledge. All right. So in our last episode, we also heard uh, from from all of you, really. But Sam, you had some really good things to say about unlearning some of the things that we thought we knew. I'm wondering if you could just share a little bit of that to give context to frame up this episode. Yeah, I can recap that. Basically, it's not only things to unlearn about what the population has been taught about Indigenous people or Dakota people, but even how everybody views the land now as more of you know a resource of what they get out of it and relearning a more of cohesive approach of working with nature and with the land and being better stewards. Yeah, to Sam's point, this is Amanda. I just wanted to add that I think it's really interesting that this we're having this conversation today. Uh, recently, the current administration, the Biden-Harris administration, announced that uh, They're looking for more nature-based solutions to fight climate change and strengthen communities. And I think that we're starting to see on various levels of government and interpersonal relationships that people are cultivating this idea of returning back to nature to find solutions to things that the challenges that we're starting to see today. So thinking about the work you all are doing, so what I'd like to do now at this point is go around the room and just hear people's uh, perspectives on prairie conservation and, and you know their their community's perspective on uh, prairie conservation. You know, basically getting at what role does prairie currently play in your tribal community. Well, the predominant land use in this region is farmland, and so Lower Sioux is surrounded by row crop farmland. The prairies within the community act as an oasis for wildlife in this region with all the row crops. Lower Sioux has both remnant prairies that have been untouched, as well as a number of prairie restoration sites. Lower Sioux maintains the prairie remnant prairie by actively working to keep out these aggressive invasive species. And in the prairie restoration sites, some of those were former farmland turned into new prairies, one being in the Minnesota River floodplain. The tribe is forward-thinking when it comes to our changing climate and seeding plants that are both traditional and resilient for the new climate trends we have been experiencing with the recent droughts and flooding episodes. Another one of the main benefits to preserving and restoring the prairies on Lower Sioux is the importance of cultural and medicinal plants. Tribal members actively harvest numerous cultural and medicinal plants only found in the native prairies. And these are used in traditional ways, as traditional food and for their health. The office environment and the tribe's education department also integrates the prairie and native plant knowledge into educational programs and outreach initiatives. There's been more discussions on traditional indigenous food systems as well. Lower Sioux has installed a native edible plant garden area for community members to harvest in a one-acre setting near our Lower Sioux Health Clinic. The doctors and chiropractor harvest medicinal prairie plants right outside the doors to use in the clinic. And many elders and community members harvest the native foods such as wild plum, sand cherry, ground cherry, wild strawberries, gooseberry, and many others. 
The accessibility of this site with a wide variety of important plants means that anyone going to the clinic has this available. Just an extra word on the remnant prairie. It's very exciting to talk about that we have a remnant prairie, but also in a way to say that 15 acres is a big deal when once there was 18 million acres in Minnesota speaks to how much we should value this rare habitat. Since the remnant prairie have not been farmed and contains so many traditional native prairie plants, the Lower Sioux harvests the seeds from these prairies by hand for other restoration projects. Also, I think it's worth noting that recent research shows that prairies help mitigate climate change with all of the stored carbon in prairies, and it should be considered more resilient than forests. When wildfires move through forests, the carbon that was stored in the wood and leaves is now burned carbon and is released back to the atmosphere. Whereas the advantage with prairies are, these are more resistant to the droughts and the carbon is fixed underground and stays in the roots and soils when a fire does happen. I find it's helpful to look at every component, every type of life as important, as in soil health is dependent on the smallest microscopic component. So it's in this holistic approach that I feel is very important. Yeah, um, prairies of significant importance to the Prairie Island Indian community. Um, many of our plants, relatives for cultural and medicinal value and foods occur in the prairie. So, um, and I'll just say our, our prairie management is, has five main objectives. First of all, is being that connection to culture, um, making sure that certain medicines and foods are available. Um, you know, I'm talking to some of our, our elders about, uh, uh, the, the struggles that had gone through um, in, in the past um, with displacement and stuff, yeah, you know, uh, as an example, uh, prairie sage is a very, very important cultural plant. Uh, it's one of the main four medicines of the Dakota people. Um, they had to work with tribes to the north to be able to access that resource because it did not occur on Prairie Island anymore because um, like many prairies, it was predominantly converted into uh, agricultural use. As we've restored prairies on Prairie Island, and at this time we're at 400 acres that have been restored um, with very little uh, remnant prairie left, uh, but we've seen this regrowth and, and reestablishment of prairie sage. And that's one of the things that we see from our community of the thankfulness that the prairies are back, you know, and, and healthy and providing for the people. Um, and and I, I can't talk to the cultural side of things as I'm an employee and not a, a community member, um, but to see that as, as an employee and, and that, that strong connection and that gratitude is, is amazing. Um, so culture is the number one thing. Um, number two is, you know, the, the habitat that it provides, you know, uh, we were talking earlier about birds and, you know, these grasslands have significant importance to our, our native, uh, grassland bird community. So, you know, we've had, um, species with, with, with cultural value too. So like the meadowlark, there's an important meadowlark story in the Dakota history. And other species like the bobolink, um, uh, savannah sparrow, all those um, have ability to persist on our landscape now. Um, so the years that I've been working for Prairie Island, last 13 years, you know, I've seen the numbers of bobolinks and uh, spe specifically meadowlark increase over the time as we've expanded our prairies and they've become more established. Um, we've even had the loggerhead shrike, which is one of the rarest species in Minnesota to nest. We've had them nesting on Prairie Island, which was, to me, was, was a was a huge victory. So um, another uh, purpose for our prairies is our water quality control or, you know, our protection of the water resources. We're right on the Mississippi River. Um, we have incorporated some of our earliest uh, prairie restorations as buffers for um runoff from our agricultural fields. So it will purposely um, restoring prairies to get that benefit. Um, and, you know, not just the water quality, but also the, the, the cultural values that come with the prairies. Um, and I think one of the last things I'll mention is our bison herd. So back in the 1990s, Prairie Island um, began its, its story of bringing bison back onto Prairie Island. You know, it started with one individual bison that uh, uh, there, there was a, an elders council to dis determine if we were going to keep this bison or if we were going to use it as a feast, you know, in a feast. And the decision was to keep the bison. Well, that's grown to now 300 head of buffalo, uh, or bison, I should say. 
Um, so, you know, one of those early purposes of our prairies was to uh, serve as supplemental hay or feed for our bison. Um, that's that's where prairie number one was established was to, to feed our bison. So, you know, these are all things that uh, have that direct connection to the culture of the people um, of Prairie Island. And then another purpose of our prairies is archaeological protection. We're on the Minis uh, Mississippi River. Um, the whole river valley and a lot of the river valleys in this part of the country, this part of the state, um, were centers of Dakota culture. Um, so most of the terraces, points, overlooks have archaeological significance, either it be village sites, um, hunting camps, um, and one of the more important ones is the, the fact that we have uh, burial mounds. On Prairie Island alone, I think there must be over 40 burial mounds. Um, and a lot of this area was uh, converted to agriculture. And so for years and years, I mean, we're talking probably 100 plus years, these, these archaeological resources were being plowed and planted and plowed and planted. Um, so as we find um, evidence of these archaeological sites, we use prairie as our mitigation to protect the, the archaeological resources. So, you know, we're perpetuating, saving the archaeological resources while also perpetuating uh, uh, prairie, uh, continual prairie preservation. I love that. It all comes back to the prairie at the end. Amanda, let's hear a little bit from you on the same question. Sure. So building off of what Gabe was speaking about earlier, which I think is really important discussion about the, the water quality, the protection of the lands for archaeological sites, and so on. It's sort of building off of this idea that everything is connected. All of the projects that we do, the work that we do, it's all connected. Um, for myself, as a project manager, I think that my job is to listen and to respond to the needs of the community, uh, as well as identify areas within the landscape that can be addressed in a respectful and appropriate way. I think it's really important in this work to collaborate with each other. Um, so for example, Samantha and I work very often together on projects. If I know I'm going to be doing something, she's the first person to hear about it. <laughs> and so I think that's, that's a big part of, um, our success, I think, of pra both prairie restoration as well as project uh, development is reaching out to the community, reaching out to departments and saying, what's already been done? What makes sense for your program? And how can we work together to see these projects through? Because everything is connected. For the Upper Sioux community, it's a, it's a small land base and a lot of it cannot be developed. We have over 600 acres in the Wetland Reserve Program with a, around 2,000 acres total uh, of land base. So that's a significant amount. And we spend a lot of time going into those spaces and looking at how can we improve this for both people as well as animals and plant life and doing the best that we can to address the concerns that might be there. And, and one of the things that we've talked about a little bit is uh, this idea of displaced plant relatives or invasive species, because these were plants that were brought here and we've seen the effects of globalization and it's not just in, um, you know, seeing different types of technology and what have you, but it's also in in the plant life that we're seeing around here and trying to understand why that plant life might be there, the benefits to us, and then how can we interact with that landscape in a respectful way. And then also to understand why those plants might have been there in the first place. And that's, that's a really interesting conversation to have. But as an individual land manager, um, I think it's important to think about these projects long term uh, and what they mean to the community, 
who has limited resources, um, trying to focus on projects that people can see and touch and connect with. Uh, we have two prairies that are close to tribal housing and to the governmental building, buildings, and they are burned regularly in collaboration with the BIA to stimulate prairie plant growth. And I think it's really cool and I would say even important for the community to have this opportunity to see these burns and to have this connection with them and see that it's not scary. It stimulates life and, and cultivating that same sort of relationship between the, the land management, what's in the prairie, just having that access to it, I think makes such a big difference. And I've actually been recently to a Shakopee and I think it's so incredible, these micro prairies that you guys have in place because they are right there surrounding people in an, a more urban environment and connecting you to that space. Even as we said in the last episode, if it's a small area, it still has so much benefit, even if it's just that educational component. But of course, we know it's more than that. So. I think that's for for me. It's really important to realize that all of our projects are connected. Bringing the prairie into the conversation is really important. Whether we're doing housing development, um, solid waste removal, and restoration on a project, or just restoring cropland back to prairie. I would actually like to go more personal with it. I know the question was more about the tribe, but as a tribal member who lives near those prairies that Amanda mentioned, I can give firsthand experience about how that has impacted and the benefits. And I can literally walk out just past my front yard and I can go harvest the medicines that I need either for my spiritual health or my physical health. And that is because of the prairie restoration work that has been done by tribal staff. Even going into, you know, I know we're talking about prairies, but (laughs) um, we're also talking about this need to preserve whatever land we can. And even like the wetlands that we're talking about are the river bottom lands. Again, that's not that far away. And we're able to go there and and harvest things that when I was growing up were just stories. We'd hear these stories about, oh, this grandma knew all the medicines and she knew the plants. And well, which ones? Like, well, we don't know because we don't have access to them. And now we're relearning that. We're able to use those again. And one of the most, um, I think one of the most significant little interactions I had is we had an elder and medicine person that came down to visit us from North Dakota. And one of those little restored prairies is maybe a few acres. And he just kept going on and on and repeating over and over about how much medicine was there and how great that was. And and this is coming from someone who lives on a, in a community or reservation that has a thousand times more acres than we do. So so those are those real life experiences that we can give examples of. Thank you, Sam, so much for sharing that perspective. I'm really glad that you mentioned access to the prairie, in particular for food and medicine. Farron, let's hear a little bit from you. So I guess from my perspective as a Native person who works for a tribal community, I'm about building that reciprocal relationship back with the prairie. And Robin Wall Kimmerer did a really good job of coining the term reciprocal restoration. And that's, you know, the relationship that you're building back with all of these different species, all these different relatives. And so that's something that I really try to incorporate with the way that our prairies are restored and activities that are surrounding our uh, prairies. So one of the ways that we're doing that, obviously, is bringing back these plant relatives. And that brings back a lot of other relatives in the process like the zitkanan or the birds and and one of the plants that we were successful at bringing back was um prairie turnip and that's timpsana in the dakota language and um and that's again access to these plants right so we have community members who've had to travel to south dakota to harvest those plants and so now they're actually able to harvest these plants in our communities and 
Amanda mentioned our micro prairies that we have. And so we have prairies at like different sizes throughout our community. We have prairies as small as, you know, a quarter of an acre all the way up to 160 acres. And so having these micro prairies around the community in an urban environment also um, provides opportunities for people to learn more about their plant relatives to bring back that you know, knowledge to provide opportunities to bring back that knowledge. And one of my elders told me too, that if you don't talk to plants or if you don't acknowledge them, acknowledge their existence because they have a spirit, they'll think that we don't need them anymore. So that's something that I keep in mind too, when I'm out in the prairie, (laughs) I'll go and I'll look at a plant and something that I like to do is, you know, offer tobacco. And that's something that is again, reestablishing, reestablishing that reciprocal relationship because you're acknowledging that plant spirit. And even if you're not going to harvest it, you can still acknowledge it and, and pay respects to that plant. And I think that's <laughs> something that people outside of our community are like, well, that's, you know, that's, that's not a sentient being, <laughs> but they really are. And, and I think that's really important to um, acknowledge that, that their spirits are still there and if we don't, they might go away. And maybe that's why some of the plants that we don't have have gone away too. And, um, and just also another thing that we can do for the plants is um, learning what their names are. <laughs> so that's something that's really important to me, like in our community is having people come out on plant walks and, and going for walks and, and understanding their, their English names or their Latin names and also understanding they're either their Dakota or their indigenous names. For me, I'm Ojibwe, um, Anishinaabe. I'm an enrolled citizen of the Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa. And so that's something that's I've been trying to learn and revitalize for myself is understanding like what their names are. Because she also told me, my elder, that sometimes these plants, they don't speak English. They speak our indigenous languages. And I think the same thing for birds too, right, Will? There's some different birds that um, that might speak Dakota instead of English. And so I'm always thinking of that when um, I'm trying to weave my, you know, traditional knowledge with Western, my Western knowledge, too, because I went to, you know, school in a Western institution and I have a background in Western knowledge. And that's something that's important to me is interweaving those two knowledge systems so that, you know, it's more holistic and, and there's different approaches to to looking at prairies. And I think we talked about this earlier about not calling invasive species, um, invasive species. They're, they're plant relatives. They were brought here by people and it's, you know, not their, (laughs) their fault that, that they're here. And there, there is some things that we can do to, you know, set them back, but to view them as like the enemy or, or to view them in in that context is, is kind of wild to me. (laughs) It's like, well, you know, they have a gift too. It's just what, what's their gift that they're, they're trying to teach us. Um, and yeah, so those are that for me specifically, that's what I like to do and, and how I approach, um, you know, prairie management and for the community, again, they're just trying to be good stewards of the, of the, their, you know, their community and then in the, in the landscape basically. And they're also trying to be good neighbors to other people around them. So we get a lot of, um, compliments from our neighbors and there's been a lot of birders that have sent us emails because again like Gabe said a lot of the birds are coming back to these areas and um, that's really good to see and I think that's one of the most rewarding things for me is to hear when people in the community are able to harvest their traditional plants or they say like oh I see all this bird out here like Michael told me the other day or um, interpreter that he saw 15 metal lark like out in one of our restored prairies and I was just like wow that's amazing um, so yeah that's that's how I approach some things I would really like to hear what your challenges are when it comes to prairie conservation clearly there are some big challenges and then also what are the most rewarding aspects of your work well challenges certainly are that the community has a limited land base and its needs for additional houses and services grows as the community grows. Also funding for conservation work is limited as well as the staff and time dedicated to prairie conservation work. 
And again, one of the big, biggest challenge in Southwest Minnesota is the pressure from farming. Southwest Minnesota has some of the best farming soils due to the prairies <laughs> that existed here. So there's a lot of pressure to farm these lands. The prairies do not generate income like farm land does, although the prairies are instead rich with biodiversity for both plants and wildlife and traditional native plants. And people. And people. Yeah, we have healthy prairies. We have healthy people because <laughs> we're drinking that water they're filtering and breathing that air. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So challenges. So at least on Prairie Island, because I, I mean, we could talk about funding and all that sort of thing. And that is probably going to be touched upon by multiple people. So we live right next door to the Mississippi River. And because of things like climate change, you, we've seen more flooding issues. And so, you know, we've, we've tried to restore prairie on Prairie Island and so much of it is prone to flooding. Um, some of our restorations have just been lost due to these flooding issues. And that's all, you know, related to also what's being done upriver with tiling and, and that sort of thing. Um, so we're seeing this, this challenge of, of flooding within Prairie Island. Um, another thing is just managing the biodiversity on our prairies, um, you know, uh, trying to ensure that the forbs and the important cultural plants are persistent. Whereas, you know, a lot of times we have an issue of like the grass is taking over. So trying to find ways to ensure that we can keep that biodiversity without having to turn too much to things like uh, herbicides, which is something that a lot, I think a lot of the other tribal managers um, staff will say is that use of herbicides is, it's a challenge. Um, it's a tool that we have, but it's not always something that we, we can turn to because we're trying to be sensitive to the land and the plants. So those are two, two of our, our main challenges on PI. Yeah. At Chocopee, we have similar challenges. Um, getting back some of those cultural plants like Timsana can be very difficult. Um, especially if you're trying to grow it from seed, <laughs> it's not, you don't know, there's a lot of trial and error, but again, that's reestablishing that relationship with that plant and understanding that there's a process that needs to happen. We also have um, some challenges with prescribed burning in our, in our location. We have a lot of our prairies are micro prairies that are abutted right next to some housing developments. We have some sensitive communities. There's elementary schools, there's hospitals nearby. And so we have to be very cognizant of where we put our smoke from our, from our burns. And that can be very difficult um, logistically to even get a controlled burn or a prescribed burn on the ground often a lot of times. Yeah, so we're just trying to bring back some of these natural disturbances, right? And another thing that we don't have on the landscape right now is, you know, one of our biggest herbivores that was here pre-contact, and now a lot of them are gone. But luckily, some of those relatives are being brought back. And so um, hopefully in the future, the Shakopee, Metawakadon Sioux community will also bring back some of those herbivores and natural processes that were here historically and you know, are so beneficial for our prairies. Absolutely. Amanda, let's hear a little bit from you. Sure. I think for myself, one of the most challenging aspects of a successful prairie restoration or conservation effort is consistent and continual management effort. It's really easy to start off strong. Perhaps it's with funding <laughs> and then to maybe lose some steam at some point. I think sometimes uh, priorities may shift and the concentration may be on a different aspect of the many projects that we have as tribal communities. Um, and so I think that that can be a challenge that a lot of prairie managers come up against is either the, the amount that needs to be managed or the type or consistency. And I think that sometimes we think in terms of a number of years or a career, and really things take time. We've spent so much time creating this poor relationship with the land and creating this almost distrust between the plant communities. I, I think that building up that relationship, like Farron was talking about, 
with the plants and with the resources takes time and we're not used to things taking time. (laughs) So if it takes 10, 20 plus years to, um, to restore or more, I think sometimes that people can become discouraged and that can be a challenge in prairie restoration. Um, we have a great example of that with our oak savanna restoration site. We've been doing oak savanna restoration for about 15 years, and there's been various cycles of how to manage that project, whether it be with goats, with herbicide, with just cutting. And it's a lot of trial and error. And I think sometimes people can feel discouraged when you see <laughs> not the result you're looking for. And so I would just say, as like a rallying call that there's no need to lose heart. I think that we should continue to build those relationships and that trust and the co-management and the communication. And as we're doing that, um, we, we will have more successful projects. And I really do think that that's true. Yeah, this is fair. And I can talk a little bit more about the challenges of managing oak savannas too, because I feel like the science, the Western science also isn't at a point where we can definitively say like, this should be how often we burn these areas. This is, should be the ten- intensity. Obviously there's a lot of nuances to that, but um, I often see oak savannas where there's these giant oaks right in there, but you don't see the different cohorts of oak, different ages of oaks. So we have these huge oaks, but what's going to happen <laughs> when those are gone and we need to be thinking about you know the younger oaks and how do we promote their regeneration too and I feel like one of the components that is missing is grazing too and so again thinking about things more holistically and bringing back these relatives or even doing you know a lot of the times we were burning it would have been way different traditionally of how our ancestors burned and so that's something that I often think about of like well, how did our ancestors burn? What did they use to burn? And what are the different tools that were used? And I was just at a training in California with the Karuk tribe. And it was amazing because their community has kept a lot of their fire knowledge and the different techniques that their ancestors used to burn. But I feel like in the Midwest, some of that knowledge has been lost, like specifically the techniques that were used, the timing of when our ancestors would have burned. But we do kind of know some um, timing of when they would have burned to, like for specific things, because that action was used very sophisticatedly. And, you know, it was suppressed. And that's something that, um, you know, because it was suppressed, that knowledge is kind of gone now, too. So that's something I think about often, too, is like, man, I really wish I could go to an elder and (laughs) ask, like, you know, when would we have burned for this specific thing or or what tools did we use for burning and, or what were our, our traditional drip torches, you know? (laughs) And, uh, and I think in a, even in like now I work with a lot of different firefighters. I work with the Bureau of Indian Affairs. I'm trying to get, you know, qualified in the federal system, you know, and that in itself is very challenging because our lands are federal lands. So you have to have those qualifications to burn on our lands. And that's something that's a barrier, too, for cultural burning, because there's a very distinct difference between cultural burning and burning and using prescribed fire for cultural objectives. And, um, yeah, I can get on a soapbox about this for a long time. And again, this could be another episode. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, that's uh, that's just something I think about a lot with oak savannas. and, And I think we haven't figured out the formula. But again, that's. Your, it's our responsibility to reestablish that relationship and learn more as much as we can in, in our lifetime anyways. Absolutely. And I say we're still learning Oak Savannah, Prairie, uh, all of it, right? Like I wish these are, there's so many pieces that we, we don't know about. I mean, I just think about there's 1 billion organisms in a teaspoon of soil. Okay. <laughs> like do do we know all of their names? Do we know all of their interactions? You know, that's there's just so much that we're still learning about and trying to puzzle out, which is why I think we're going to be better served if we can work together, learn from each other, which I'm queuing us right up for our next question. 
Yeah. All right. You guys did a good job of highlighting challenges. How about rewards? I don't think we touched on rewards very much. Uh, Amanda, would you care to, to give us some rewarding parts of your of your prey management? Sure. I think that there's really no downside to the aspects of prairie conservation. Even the challenges can be really rewarding because as you're addressing those, you're learning and you can incorporate the information that you receive from others into other projects that you're you're doing within the community. Um, I think as a person for me, I love seeing a beautiful, diverse, and open prairie that people and animals are able to visit and utilize. <laughs> I mean, I have a really great time in the spring seeing the little baby turkeys running through the oak savanna and through the prairie. It's just like really fun experience. And so as a person, I enjoy seeing the, the animals utilizing these spaces, uh, seeing the goldfinches eating the thistle, still a joy. And, uh, and then just knowing that at some point I'm going to run into an elder or two down picking some choke cherries. It's just a really fun time for me. And I, I like all aspects of prairie restoration. Uh, this is Gabe uh, from Prairie Island. I concur everything that Amanda just said. And I think it's also important to state that, you know, just what we've been able to, uh, to do for the community. So just getting that or to, to have that gratitude from the community, knowing that the work that we're doing is making that difference. Um, and on top of that, I mean, just knowing that even in our little world of Prairie Island, which is, you know, 5,000 acre little island in the middle of the Mississippi and Vermilion Rivers, that the work that we're doing is improving uh, water quality. It's providing habitat for, you know, native birds and, and, and all that. So, yeah, it's just knowing that we're making a difference with what we're doing on a larger scale. Well, for me, um, to know that there are real on-the-ground improvements that I know are happening because I see all the butterflies, the bees, and other pollinators thriving on the plants in the prairies. Also, having a source for rare traditional plants in a remnant prairie from pre-farming time and then having that native seed source to harvest from. But by far for me, it's the elders' excitement when they can see plants that they gather for traditional ways. Seeing community members out in the prairies harvesting plants, then hearing um, them get so excited about the sage, the sweetgrass, and other plants um, that are in these new prairie areas that we are restoring. Yeah, so for me, it's really rewarding to be able to interact with the community members on the prairie. <laughs> and people from the shock well people from Shakopee specifically and being able to see um them able to harvest plants that they don't have haven't had access to in over probably 75 years so like the Timpsona that I mentioned earlier we had an event where um it was a plant identification with Hope Flanagan who works for the Dream of Wild Health and she's awesome if you haven't heard of her you should look her up um but she looked down and saw and she's like, Baron, is that what I think it is? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I hope that is. And so one of our community members is named Cindy Milda. She's our public education coordinator at Hochikata Tea. She um, was able to show people how to harvest that plant and, and what it was. And, and we all got to taste Timpsana. And that was the first time I ever got to taste it too. So that was really rewarding. Um, and then, yeah, like, like they said, being able to provide all these, you know, in a Western context, all these services right, back to the community, right? Um, like clean water, clean air. And um, yeah, like Gabe said, there's not really anything that's a bummer about working with prairies, right? It's like, it's awesome to go and, you know, you can see an area that you seeded like five years ago and now you've seen what's come up and you can say like, yeah, like I helped those, I helped those plants come back. <laughs> so, so that's something that for me, I really enjoy. And I really enjoy seeing the different processes and different stages of these prairies and bringing them back. 
think for me, I touched on it earlier, and like everyone else has been saying, is seeing things come back, but also knowing that it's it's changing things for changing things for the next generation, and seeing it become a place where our community is interacting with the prairie again, and the not only the older ones that maybe haven't seen or had this opportunity for for decades, but also um, the other generations coming up that now this is their norm. I mentioned earlier about the prairie that's outside my house. Well, my niece just lives a couple houses down and she randomly one day was telling me about, I like how I can just go across from my house and get sage. And I was like, that's amazing. I can also, like I mentioned that I would get to work with more agencies and places outside of the community. And now be, through that work and this consultation work that I do, I have a better idea of where things are so I can help people get the plants that they need. Um, other community members or elders to say, hey, I'm really looking for, I need this. And like, oh, I know where you can find that. And I can make that connection for them. That's one of the most rewarding things. Very nice. I love that. It's always so exciting when you know exactly where something is and you can show somebody else and you're like, and Farron said it earlier, we were offline, but she was like, I know right where that is, <laughs> which is always so great. So we're talking sort of around this this bigger concept, right? But we, we're talking about how little prairie we have left and how important it is to keep it diverse and connected and resilient. Um, another way to think about that is healthy. Um, but we know this is going to take all of us working together to do this. So how do we work together? How are we going to do this? We can work together and share our knowledge and share local and native seed sources for restoration work are a few of the ideas that would help our work. I think we talked about this a little bit earlier, but one of the things that I think about that we can, you know, do to ensure that prairies persist is just be lifelong learners and willing to um, learn as much as you can about the prairies, especially you know, as ecologists and biologists or whatever ist you are, uh, understanding that, you know, your perspective is just your perspective and, and you know, having some humility and understanding that there are other ways of being. And um, that can be incorporated in how we look at the prairie and manage the prairie, but also developing relationships with other people too. Across departments, like specifically in, in Shakopee, I'm always looking to work with people at Hochikata Tea and bring their knowledge systems and incorporate that into the way I'm thinking. And then even working um, collectively as Dakota communities. And, you know, like we said, our land bases are really small. And how can we, you know, think about connection and, and interconnecting things together and interconnecting prairies and, and working with different agencies? Um, that can be difficult sometimes, but just having an open mind and, and reaching across and understanding that people are coming with different perspectives, I think is really important. I love that. I think it's also super important for us to remember that relationships are uh, two-way streets and they are reciprocal. And so we need to remember not just to ask of each other, but also be ready to give to one another. I think that's a super important part of it. Yeah, I don't know if I can add a whole lot to what Farron said because it's I'm in the same boat. You know, it's it's about those relationships with other other people. You know, um, we're a small tribe, um, small capacity, have a lot of uh, responsibilities within the tribe. So knowing that we can count on our neighbors, you know, I, I mean, we're we're right next door to a WMA and be able to work with that uh, land manager um, to to benefit from each other's work. Um, you know, I look at you know, one of the biggest ways to help prairies, I always think, is connectivity. And, you know, we, we have this massive land base that was once but no longer. And we need to get some semblance of that back. So having these partnerships between the tribes and the state offices and maybe the federal agencies. And, you know, and, and I always like when you have farmers who ha are committed to better stewardship of the land and can incorporate that. And then you start making that connective you know, uh, mosaic across the landscape that benefits, you know, not, not just the prairie itself, but the services that it provides. Yeah. Speaking of that, I think it's important, uh, to invest in prairies, to invest your time, to invest some funding, 
to invest uh, seed collection. There's so many different things that we can do uh, to cultivate an active relationship with the various plants and animals that use these areas, as well as the people. Um, I'm just going to circle back to that. Even the like the micro prairies, uh, they create this sense of belonging. Um, that this is what life looks like, and we can see it everywhere or anywhere. And I think that that's something that we start to lose sight of at times. And it's really important to invest in having more areas of prairies and and not seeing it as a an area that needs to be mowed or needs to be converted to be quote unquote productive in some way that it is productive and that it is important. And so when I say invest in prairies, I don't just mean financially, but also cultivating that connection that we've been circling back to. Prairies thrive with disturbance. You know, having the bison, having people and, you know, going out and disturbing the plants and collecting them, like there is, there's a great relationship building that happens and in the fire disturbance. So just keeping that in mind too, is that the relationship isn't a hands-off experience. It is definitely getting in there and, and working in those spaces. Yeah, I think this is fair. I think that people often think that, you know, humans are are the enemy of the of the prairie, which, you know, we can be really destructive. But we're also like for our ancestors, you can think of them as keystone species too in those systems because they had that relationship and because they did so many things to manipulate the landscape. Um, yeah, that's that's something that I think that in Western science that's not really talked about, that we were we're often viewed as destructive where for us, our ancestors were there for a reason and, and they weren't destructive. They had good relationships with those areas and understood that they needed to do certain things to have them persist for survival. Let's let's go to our kind of we're wrapping up these questions, getting at um uh the future goals of, of your, of, of prairie and prairie management for your, for your tribal communities. Yeah. Um, so one of our future goals and something that we've considered for a long time, and then also, which is stepping back to some of what uh, Amanda and Farrah were talking about with the disturbance aspect is incorporating bison back into our prairies. And I know this is being done within the state at certain, certain areas. Um, but, you know, the wallows that buffalo leave, uh, uh, the grazing within the oak savannas. Um, there's there's research that states that that stimulates more biodiversity through that grazing and, and that that disturbance. So, you know, I think that that's the missing piece within prairie management. So to incorporate that grazing aspect with that keystone species, excuse me, with that keystone species, um, uh, that's that's a goal that we have. And um, I, ho- I hope to see it in my lifetime. So for us at Shakopee, our goal is just to continue restoring prairies and, and bringing back, you know, our plant relatives and providing opportunities for the community to, you know, revitalize some of that knowledge that's been lost. Um, and then working with the Dakota language manager and with Michael to provide those opportunities and, and just building more relationships with our departments so that, you know, our community members have those opportunities to, to go out and, and harvest medicines and foods and, and other sources of material. Farron, I think it's a really good point that um, when you're talking about future goals for prairie conservation, it's not just management. It's not just getting more prairie on the landscape. It's working with people. And, and Will and Michael, people in their position, are, are, are crucial for that. Um, it's, we're not going to get there just doing work on the land. It's working on people. Yeah, those are all great points. And that's very similar to what the Upper Sioux community is also working towards, is uh, continuing to restore and manage prairies, and then also to bring in uh, more cultural plant experts who can give us a better idea of what plants we might be able to reintroduce into these spaces and um, bringing more folks onto the prairie. And we 
we have a language specialist now who can come out with us and, and teach us the names, the plant names in Dakota, which is so important. We were touching on that earlier and that relationship building is, is knowing the plant names. And so those are some of our goals is to, to bring the people into these spaces and then to bring more of the plants back into these spaces. And it's really important for this relationship building, but I think it's also important when we start looking more broadly at climate resiliency and knowing that there's going to be so many changes on our landscape and there already have been. So we've, we've seen this year, we had flooding in the spring and then we've had a summer of drought. And I think we're going to continue to see the pendulum swing from one extreme to another. And that's why I think it's the, this is one of the most important things that we can be doing right now is, is working with the landscape and understanding how we can contribute our best selves to relearn what the plant communities should be like now. Well said. Well, there's been an interest to restore more prairies with traditional cultural and medicinal plants that are helpful for the environment and also the tribal community. Laura Sue has been working on education and outreach to preserve and spread this knowledge. We've developed a cultural and medicinal plant guidebook and a field pocket book that's specific for Laura Sue. And we developed a app that is based on those guidebooks of the cultural and medicinal plants. And it includes the Dakota name and uses for the plant. The app is available for community members and includes a feature where one of our Lower Sioux language teacher pronounces the Dakota name. Deb, I have that book and it's fantastic. Oh, excellent. Great, great. <laughs> I should yeah. send you the, um, the link to the app so you can, you actually get to hear the person say the Dakota name. I would love that. And I also like in the front of the book how we talk about, you know, diff it is a oral language. And so different people are going to have different names and different pronunciations. So um, and we're open to including more of those, but um, I've just kind of taken it as, you know, there's just different variations out there. It's okay. <laughs> There's going to be slight unique variations. Yeah, people sure. and wildlife and plants are all unique. Those, those are wonderful and gives me hope for Prairie. Megan, should we, should we move on to the Let's Science section? We should. It's hard to move on when I'm having so much fun with what we're talking I about, know. but I guess we Good can. <laughs> one of those things where limited time, so many conversations that we need to have. So we're moving on to our Let's Science. And this is the part of the podcast where we share book, a blog, or paper, or other resources where you can learn more about the amazing traditional knowledge and science that we've been talking about today. And so we're just going to go ahead and go around the room and hear some of the resources that you all would like to share. And Farron, let's start with you. So before we begin, let's science. <laughs> I think we should talk about, um, about how to approach Indigenous people, tribal nations, about traditional ecological knowledge. Um, there definitely has to be a relationship that's established before you have a, you know, have an ask because a lot of times... Like for me specifically, I've had some people reach out to me and ask, you know, about traditional ecological knowledge or about our traditional knowledge. And sometimes that can feel very extractive. And so, again, that's that's that reciprocal relationship that what's your intention? For me, it's all about the intent, right? What What's the intention of what you're going to do with this information that I give you? Because historically for us as Indigenous people, some of the information that we have given has been misrepresented, has been misused, has been used against us in some ways. And so that's, again, where for me, I need to trust somebody to be able to share knowledge with them. And 
you know, again, it's, it's that relationship. And so I think that's really important that we discuss that before we, we get into it. And also a lot of our knowledge is passed down orally. And so sometimes that, that process has been disrupted, has been um, lost because of all the stuff that we talked about in that first episode, everything that our people have gone through. And so some of that knowledge, again, might not be there. And so it's just important to keep that context in mind when you do reach out to, you know, a tribal community, tribal nation, or even an indigenous person in general and ask something. It's like kind of think before you ask and and what what's your intention and, and be really upfront about that too. You can say like, you know, well, this is why I'm interested in this topic and and that can start a really good conversation. Um, so for me, I have two books that I recommend people look into. And, and one of the books is called Our Knowledge is Not Primitive by uh, Wendy McCoon's Guinese. Sorry, I might be pronouncing or butchering her name. But basically, that's a book that kind of is, does a really good job of describing how our knowledge is has been viewed as, you know, not scientific and, and in different contexts or different lens through a Western perspective. And so I really like that book. And the second book I recommend is called Fresh Banana Leaves, Healing Indigenous Landscapes Through Indigenous Science. The author is Jessica Hernandez. I m- mentioned earlier that Lower Sioux has a, a cultural and medicinal plant guidebook and also a, a field pocket guide. And these are available through Amazon. Um, the guidebook is um, is like 300 plants listed in there, so there's a lot of information. And the pocket guide is um, a smaller book that fits in if you wanted to take it outdoors and have it on your prairie hike, um, be able to take it in your pocket. So, But those are both available online, or um, you can contact the Lower Sioux Office of the Environment directly. Uh, the book that I would suggest would be Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmer. That is a book that many of my staff have utilized in how we approach some of our, not just restoration, but our, our work in cultural plants and, and, and community connectedness. So, I kind of think that it's my job to listen and learn. And the more that I learn, the more I feel it's my responsibility to create spaces that respect the knowledge that has been shared with me. Kind of speaking to Farron's point of it's important to to create these relationships with other people and to continue to foster them over time. And it does take time. And understanding that and not being offended by or challenged by that experience, I think, is really important. but it is also our responsibility to go out and look for resources. So I would I put that on the listeners to go out and, and start looking at the resources that are available out there. If you're interested in this information, there's so much available. Um, but one thing that I'm going to bring up, and it's, it's not related to, to Minnesota, but that I think is really exciting and interesting because as we are all connected, so is the world, is that to go perhaps look at the Landcare Australia and to read up about and watch some of the videos about traditional Aboriginal burning in modern day land management, because I think that this is something that we can all learn from is how to think differently about fire on the landscape. I think the only thing I can add to that is remember to not only spend time learning from people, but from the environment itself, you know, they say traditional knowledge, but it is really a science. We we learned what we know because of s- literally thousands of years of interacting. And that's the most important thing. You can't expect to know anything about anything without actually immersing yourself in that environment. Just like Sam said, I want all our listeners to know to get out there, uh, go out, listen to the Metalarks, go and watch the Bumblebees. Uh, this is the Let's Science section of a uh, this uh, podcast. So not just us here, 
Uh, this is going to be up to you guys uh, to save our prairies. I know a lot of you guys are listening to the Prairie Pod. You guys love the prairies, but what about your friends? It's going to take all of us. We are all connected. We are all related. You need to push uh, some of this education, not push, but gently share it with your friends. Like Some of your friends may be a little bit interested in prairies, and they just want to know more. Or they may not have access to the podcast or this information, but just sharing that information, it's going to take all of us to come together to save all our prairies across not just the, the state, but all across the whole country. Awesome. Michael, we could not have said that better. That was a perfect way to round out this section. Absolutely. It's going to take all of us in partnership with each other. And I also love that you mentioned learning from the land itself and all of the wildlife and relatives that live on that land. Yeah, very well said, Michael. Yeah, and absolutely. Let's let's you said you said push it first and then like let's gently encourage people but yeah spread the word that was that was great thank you so much for that for saying that and thanks so much for everybody for for those resources and thoughts on traditional ecological knowledge super important stuff Absolutely. Just so thankful that we're all here together in person, which is a treat in and of itself, but it's also a treat to just spend time with all of you today, learning from you, listening. Um, I love, Amanda, that you mentioned listening because that's an important part of learning. If we're not listening, we're not learning. So I'm just super appreciative of your time, your knowledge, and all of the things that you've shared today. As always, you can find all of the resources that we talked about today on our website at mndnr.gov backslash prairie pod. This episode was produced by the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources South Region under the Minnesota Prairie Conservation Partnership, which of course we are all in together, as Michael just mentioned. It was edited by Dan Ryder and engineered by the fantastic Bobby Boos. Oh, man, thank you, everybody. Thank you, thank you, thank you yeah, for being so here. Go fast. Go fast. Go fast. <laughs>